So Aaron called me and said, you know, hey, a really important speaker canceled on us. Is there any way you can come up and speak? And I said, yeah. I said, I'll, I'll be glad to do that because he was a, a great student. So you always have to give back a little bit. So. Uh, I'd like to do two things before I speak every time. One is to give um, a little context as to why we have conversations like these, why these are meaningful things to do. Come and listen to somebody tell you a story or tell you some information. And I always share this model, this knowledge development model, uh, because knowledge development is a lifelong journey. It doesn't, care, it doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, you need to be in the game reading, uh, gathering, gaining information, practicing it, reflecting, and learning all the time. If you ever stop, uh, you find yourself in real trouble, real trouble. So this model is something to always remember. There's three types of knowledge. This is written by a guy named Bio in the 80s. Um, he was out of Harvard and he decided he would study how people learn. And the first piece of knowledge that we always access is explicit knowledge. You'll get some explicit knowledge today from me, you know, data, material. Our best access to explicit knowledge is our iPhone, right? We can Google it and it's almost all there. And in the old days you had to triangulate because there was a lot of misinformation, but now it's pretty good, okay? Still recommend triangulation, but explicit knowledge is what we get from a lecture or what we read from a book. Uh, and it's really important because if you don't keep up, explicit knowledge is always new, always changing, right? Now think about all the things that changed during our careers, our, my career in particular. Uh, I had my first cell phone and it was a brick, right? Uh, and uh, I carried a computer that weighed like 45 pounds, uh, a compact computer. Things have really changed technology-wise over the time. So explicit knowledge is the first thing, but obviously explicit knowledge isn't enough. You now have to go do it. You have to do implicit knowledge. I always use golf as an analogy because I'm a terrible golfer. So when you do explicit knowledge and you read a book from Arnold Palmer, can you play golf? Are you ready? You read the book? Yes. yes, you're gone. Okay, well, you're better than I am. So what do you do to prove that you can play golf? You go to the, the driving range and you do it with your body, not Arnold Palmer's body, and you learn that there's some things missing between what Arnold told you and what you have to do in order to be effective on, in the game. So that's a way you have to practice. You have to do it. You have to put it in the context of who you are. This is really important on leadership because when people look and see a good leader and they go, oh, I want to be just like whoever that person is, you know, just like General Patton, just like Omar Bradley, just like Aubrey McClendon, whoever it is that you admire, okay, you, you can't be that person because you are not that person. So one of the things you have to do is to make sure that when you practice, you consider who you are. It's got to be congruent. Anything you're going to do, you need to be congruent with who you are. Develop your own authentic leadership style. So implicit knowledge comes from actually doing it and doing it within the context of who you are. And then finally, the thing that most people don't do is critical knowledge. Critical knowledge is only obtained by reflection. That's that time when you've got to spend time by yourself. You sit back on a Saturday morning having your coffee when everything is calmed down. Hopefully on Saturday morning things have calmed down for you. And, and you sit there and you go, uh, how could have I done that better? Or what happened this week that I liked that I'd like to do again? You know, one of the things that Zinger and Folkman wrote about in their book, Extraordinary Leader, they wrote about how important it is to figure out what your strengths are and then find opportunities to capitalize on those strengths. Sounds very different, doesn't it? Because most performance management systems in corporate America, they look at your weaknesses and they want to talk about them, right? How are we going to fix you? And the reality is all the data now that's come in says that is not effective. What's effective is figuring out what your strengths are and look for as many opportunities as you can find to apply that strength. So put yourself in a winning combination. So this is what we're trying to do. The intersection of the three circles is wisdom. So what we're attempting to do is always work in all three circles. If you have a big explicit circle where you do a lot of reading and, bring, and you never practice, the, the wisdom doesn't come, okay? If you never take time to pause and reflect on what you learned and, frankly, what you did, it won't turn into wisdom. So you have to build this into your routine. 
You have to build reading into your routine. Now, if you're like me, I've got a stack of books on my, on my bedstand, and I, I'm always behind, but I'm, I'm always trying to, to find out what's new and what's going on in the world. Uh, reading is a really important part of obtaining the amount of explicit knowledge that's current. And podcasts in new technology, some of the, we were talking earlier about Scott Tinker. He's got an amazing podcast out there around energy and energy development. development. And I highly encourage you to go out there and find some of those things that are beneficial. So this is part of what we're doing. I just offer that as context. And the other part about context, given our field, I was in uh, Abu Dhabi at the, uh, they call it the WU conference, the World Oil Outlook. And uh, I thought it was important to talk a little bit about uh, some of the facts. Because I think some of the facts get lost in the rhetoric of the politics that we hear day to day. And uh, so I took some notes. These are my emails to myself. Um, so the world economy, now this is a global context, is expected to more than double in size. So double between now and 2045. So think about the size of the economy today and imagine the stock market and globally being double. It tells you that you know, being long is not a bad thing if you're going to be around to 2045. Global primary energy demand is forecasted to grow 23%. 23%. That's huge. That's huge. You're not going to do that with solar panels. You're not going to do that with uh, alternatives. It's going to take it all. All kinds of energy are going to have to be required. The world currently needs to add, and this number just blew me away, 2.7 million barrels of oil equivalent per day between now and 2045. Everybody here knows how hard it is to get 2.7 million barrels of oil production into the, into the market. We have to do that per day between now and 2045. And probably the biggest issue, I, I belong to a think tank. Um, it's, it's called Concordia. And 75 people from all over the world are invited. This year it's in Madrid. And we talk about what are the most critical issues in the globe. And the irony here is climate's number three. What do you think is number one? What's the number one issue? I'm sorry? Food, world hunger, number one issue. What's the number two issue? Energies, no. It, it comes from energy, it's related, but it's the gap between the emerging economies and the developed economies. We have such a huge gap between emerging countries, knowing that they have to come to the same level of energy demand, the same level of uh, food, the same level of, of understanding, access to tools. Uh, there's just too big a gap. And that's, that leads to social injustice, it leads to energy poverty, leads to a whole bunch of other issues that, if not solved, will be a crisis for us. A crisis that even exceeds climate. Okay? But, we, but that's not in the news anymore, is it? It's not what we talk about. So that just gives you some context of what we, what we do. So when Aaron and I chatted, we said, well, gosh, you know, you've given me all but 24-hour notice. No, he gave me a week. Uh, what do you think this audience would want to hear about? And he told me a little bit about you and, and, and the different, and different roles you play. And I thought maybe, maybe you guys might be interested in not my role as a professor or my role in, as a CEO of Access Midstream, but what's going on in the boardroom. So I'm on the board of Marathon Petroleum Company. I'm also on the board of MPLX, a midstream pipeline company. Um, I've been senior advisors to Apollo. So I have all these little vantage points. I'm an NACD business fellow, so I teach the North American company directors you know, about ESG and about climate and what things need to be done. And from that perspective, I thought you guys might want to know, what, what's going on in these boardrooms? What do they do in the board? And what, what's the high-level issues that are pressing? And, and so I, get, I did a little thinking myself because I had to figure out, well, because you know, we do so many different things at the board level, what is it that's really important? Well, at the top of the list is clearly ESG. Okay. Now, right now, it's capital E, environment, climate, the risk climate brings, little s, and little g. Okay. 
But S and G are equally important, so they should be the same level. But unfortunately, right now, what's taking the stage at the politics, et cetera, is climate. Now, just so you are clear, climate science is real. There is no doubt. Nobody should be denying it. If there are still deniers here, please come meet me afterward. I'll convert you. Okay? Uh, there is no doubt that greenhouse gases do what greenhouse gases do. And thank God they, they do because it would be ni minus 19 degrees C on this planet if, it, if they didn't. So we're very thankful for greenhouse gases. No doubt CO2 is the number one greenhouse gas that stays in the air, stays in our atmosphere longer than any other greenhouse gas. Water, by the way, is a greenhouse gas. Thank God it doesn't stay in the air because it, it's actually a more effective greenhouse gas than CO2. But, of course, it, it condenses and forms rain and comes back to Earth, and the Earth has a nice cycle for it. Methane emissions. Methane is a uh, greenhouse gas, a very important one, uh, especially for our industry. That's why I partner with Project Canary and working with many people in the industry to try to declare war on methane emissions. We do not need methane leaking, from, in, at least in un unintentionally, from any of our sources. But what's the number one source of methane, by the way? Cows. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, now, believe it or not, we're doing some good work there. It's the equivalent of Beano, okay? We're giving all these cows things, uh, foods and stuff, to where they don't have uh, gas problems as much as they used to have. It's funny how we have to deal with some of these, the science, but methane is obviously clear. The third fact about climate science is the CO2 increase that we're seeing in the atmosphere, which is exponential, now 420 parts per million, is anthropogenic. It's caused by the burning of fossil fuels. For the longest time, People said, oh, no, that's from volcanoes, whatever. But we use carbon dating technology. We actually pulled the isotopes from the carbon. And we can tell you exactly where it's coming from. Okay? So it is not anything but the growing energy demand and, the fact, the, the tailpipes of each and every one of our cars. Okay? That's what's escalating the CO2. And it is unsustainable. We cannot continue. We cannot allow all these emerging economies to develop the way we've developed. We can't. It's too much CO2. It will result in much higher temperature increases. And yes, global warming is a consequence of increasing greenhouse gases. So you can see I'm an advocate for climate science, but then I fall short of being an alarmist. We're not going to sit here like boiling frogs. We are going to do something about it. And we are doing things about it. We're every day. Which country is the only country that made the Paris Accord? USA. USA. We're the only ones that reduced emissions by the amount. And, and guess what? We didn't sign the Paris Accord, okay? But we did it. How did we do it? The shale revolution. Natural gas, much cleaner burning fuel, shut down coal, and here we are today. Isn't that amazing? There are many other new technologies out there that are going to take us to a much better place than these models show. The models just extrapolate. You're, you are what you are now. You're going to continue to do what you're doing. There'll be more people doing what you're doing, and therefore it gets really bad. This concept that the oceans are going to increase and Manhattan's going to be underwater and Florida's not going to be here anymore. Don't buy it. That kind of crisis, that kind of fear-mongering, not going to happen. Because we're not going to stand for it. Now, the fuel energy world is going to change significantly. Significantly. I personally believe the number one uh, growing fuel uh, energy source is going to be fusion. Fusion energy, not fission. Fusion. I'm glad to talk to you about it in more detail. Um, I advised one of the companies in National Livermore Labs. There's been huge breakthroughs. You know, no nuclear, no nuclear waste, you know, tons of energy. You're basically replicating the, the sun here on Earth. Okay? Now, are we ready to deploy it? No. But, but is it there for the future at a zero-carbon solution? Yes. It'll be there for us. So there's lots going on. But in the ESG world, like I said, what's going on at the, gov at the board level, capital E, and it's all about climate, 
It's the SEC putting out their 252-page ruling. How are we going to comply? You know, report scope, scope one, scope two, scope three. Uh, where's the accountability? Uh, you know, the oil and gas industry are, you know, you know, gangsters. You know, we're being mislabeled again. It seems like it always turns around to be our fault. In the reality, they forget about, uh, you know, the moral argument and the fact that without energy, this, the, the economies would not be what they are today. Okay, and so it's really important for people to recognize that this is going to flow back. There's going to be um, movement in this place. I'm an advocate of electric vehicles, okay? But is it because electric vehicles are environmentally friendly? No, they're not. In fact, there are more externalities for electric vehicles today than there is the combined cycled engine. The combined cycled engine is a more environmentally friendly, even today, with its emissions, than the electric vehicle. So Mike, why are you liking electric vehicles? The reason is that if you have an electric vehicle, you consolidate the source at a smokestack at a power plant. And we have the technology later to get that CO2 out. We don't have the technology to get the CO2 out of every tailpipe. So do I believe electric vehicles make sense long-term? Yes. Short-term? We don't even know what to do with the batteries. We can't even recycle them. We, we do not have a clear solution today on anything. Every one of the technologies, solar panels, wind. You know what happens to the wind? Uh, how long do you think the average life is of a wind turbine? Seven Taking it apart in seven years. Where do you think that, what do you think that, wind, that, that big fin is worth? How, much, how long do you think that, uh, that, uh, that fin lasts in, the, in a landfill? Forever. Forever. And that's where it's going to go. That's an externality, right? Now, hopefully, we'll start seeing people make fences out of it or doing something really cool with them. You know, I don't know what, you know, what we'll see. You'll start seeing everything looks like a, a, you know, a windmill, you know, and, uh, and that'll be good. But ESG is what's probably the number one issue that's in the boardroom today, and we're talking mostly about climate and how we're going to comply with investor expectations, et cetera. The second issue, which is fairly recent, 12 months old, is inflation. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. Inflation drives up your costs, so much so that it can destroy an income statement really quickly. And as a result, it will destroy a balance sheet as well. And the oil and gas industry is not immune to this. In fact, when oil prices are higher, for whatever reason, supplies tend to come at a much higher cost because we can afford it. And of course, oil prices have this tendency to ebb and flow, so they're going to go down and then we're left with the cost for a much longer period of time. And this is something we've all lived with in our industry forever, right? So inflation has a stickiness that once the cost gets built in, it tends to last longer which destroys the margins that we all experience. And this is not just oil and gas, this is everything. So we're seeing inflation really take root, okay? Now, everyone talks about social injustice. One of the advantages of inflation is that the lower income tend to benefit more than the higher income. Because what we do is we start paying higher wages for hourly and things like that. And unfortunately, inflation has a tendency to destroy people with money who've got their money all in the equities in the stock market. So there's kind of something that needed to take place, okay? And so there is some kind of good coming out of inflation if you're into social injustice. The reality is inflation's not good in general. We've got to get it under control. Um, most people I talk to, there's probably bankers in here who know it better than I do, um, they forecast this thing being normalized by 2024. But in the boardroom, what we're talking about is how do we control the costs that are coming as a result of rising inflation? Okay, and how do we do it in a way that maybe we take a hit short term so that we have a long term profitability? Because what people don't want is to build cost in long term that when the commodity price comes down again, margins are gone. So inflation is a big conversation. The next one is technology. And if you look at our industry, 
uh, oil and gas energy, ener general energy industry, I think the biggest technology is going to be in alternatives. Okay, alternative energy has already made a big move. If we follow Europe, there's going to even be more alternative energy. And we're getting really clever. I mean, we've got new things coming up. Geothermal energy. University of Oklahoma has the project at Tuttle and one at Shawnee where we're taking low temperature, low, low ice enthalpic um, uh, water, and we're actually offsetting the costs for these schools to heat themselves. Okay? And this is from an existing well. It doesn't cost any money. You're just taking low temperature water out of the hole, putting it into an exchanger, taking it, putting it right back to the same reservoir, letting it heat up again, and you do it again and again and again and again. Okay? So pretty, pretty interesting model. Uh, in Texas, they're doing the kinetic piece where they're taking an abandoned 10,000-foot well. And because Texas has got a free market in the electrical side, there's this huge differential between the, um, and it's ERCOT, they have a huge differential between peak power price and uh, non-peak. So in the middle of the night, when no one's using electricity, very cheaply, they've taken a weight, large weight, the entire tubing, and they've filled it, and, and it goes at night, they, uh, they pull it from the ground from 10,000 feet, and they hold it at the top, and then when peak power comes, they let it go, and it generates electricity off the same, and they sell it at peak, and the differential makes money, like 100% rate of return, okay? So when you think about all the clever things we can do with the assets that we have, that we've abandoned, no longer are you gonna see a lot of wells just plugging and abandoned. That was a cost, right? Now we're treating it like an asset. It's an opportunity. So that's really uh, interesting. So technology is starting to really help us. It's an opportunity, but it also can be disruptive. I think the industry, the energy industry, needs to embrace fusion as not a disruption, but as an opportunity. It's a zero carbon opportunity. And it's going to come on at a time when everybody's going to have plenty of energy. With 23% increase in energy, there's going to be plenty of need for everything. We don't need to be fighting over it. We don't need to be concerned. We just need to make sure that we bring on solutions that can help us fight climate so that we have some options, if you will. Uh, and so I'm really excited about what Fusion is doing. For you all, just give you a little detail on Fusion Energy. August, August 8th, 2021. Wasn't that very long ago. It was the first time anywhere on the planet they were able to shoot lasers, 191 of them to be exact, into a hydrogen pellet, okay, and produce more energy gain than it took to make the laser, okay? All prior to that, fusion energy was more of an experiment, okay? And uh, since then, you saw the news here recently, they've replicated it and can now do it every 12 seconds, okay? If they get to where they can do it 12 times a second, you've got a business, okay? So it's just a matter of time before they figure out how to, how to make that work. So fusion energy's coming, okay? Uh, nobody knows when, they'll figure out all the details. Uh, one of the products of fusion energy is these neutrons, it's tritium, that comes out at 1600 degrees C, pretty hot, and we have a material science problem. For those of you who are chemical engineers that wanna figure out, I mean, 1600 degree neutrons, when they hit something, tear the crap out of something. So you gotta figure out what the blanket's gonna look like. We usually use lithium, but to absorb that heat, uh, I actually went to Livermore for one of the shots, and when I saw the blanket, that, and I said, whoa, what happened to that? And they go, that's what neutrons do, okay? So we have some work to do on, on material science as well. But the good news is, that's come a long way too. Technology on material science has come a long way. We have things that can probably withstand that kind of abuse. So be aware of technology distributions. Capital markets. This one's been really interesting to me because uh, as being on a board, I've had to deal with activists. I've had to deal with people who, who say, you know, you're in the dirty energy industry. You know, you guys need to get out, just stand down. Uh, we're going to invest all of our money in, in uh, green, new alternatives. And, and that went on for about a year. So the capital markets left us. We couldn't get funded. We couldn't get decent equity contributions. I don't care if it was venture capital, private equity. They left us for almost 18 months. And then someone said, we're not making any money. 
we're not making any returns, okay? And then all of a sudden, the dialogue started changing again, and we started to be back in favor. And so, so that, that period of 18 months appears to have gone away, but not all of the, the capital E concerns have gone away. Now it's more balanced. It's like we want to do these things, but we want to do it in a more environmentally sustainable fa fashion, which none of us in our industry disagree with that. We would all love to do that, okay? But now, instead of the capital markets leaving us entirely, we now have access to capital again, okay? So we can actually have healthy balance sheets with debt and, and uh, because there was a while there for a while you couldn't get a blue bond or a debt that, uh, to borrow money to do an oil well. Are you kidding me? Um, and then the last thing, which was kind of introduced to us over COVID, um, but all it did, COVID just unwrapped some problems that we already had, okay? We had a lot of cost efficiency built into our supply chains. But what, led, what happened is it was single point. So we figured out what the cheapest supplier Chinese labor, whatever it was, the cheapest supplier of whatever we needed, and we lined it up. And we put in long-term contracts, and we thought, oh, we got this. I got the best deal. Only to realize one crisis, like COVID, and there you're, you're done. You're too vulnerable. So now the logic in the boardroom is you need to have three or four suppliers. And maybe cost is not the only metric we need to focus on. Maybe reliability is of equal value. Okay. Well, in comes the American workforce. In comes where do you get more reliable? You get more reliable where the, the geopolitical risk is the lowest. And so the U.S. has made a big comeback as a result of the supply chain uncertainties that were created as a result of the pandemic. What I find really fascinating about the whole supply chain dialogue was how many things were just operating on the critical edge. I mean, critical edge. We, we, we had no containers. We had, we had no rail cars that could, could substitute for trucks that couldn't work. We had... No truck drivers. I mean, everything we looked at, we were short of, okay? And it was fascinating that all of it got exposed by the pandemic. We don't have enough uh, marine entrance and access to bring tankers in. You'd have thought someone would have done that in that math, right? And we learned a, a lot. So I think we're going to be much better off as a result. But companies like, in my, my case, uh, MPC, others, we, we work really hard to make sure that uh, that reliability component gets equal say as the cost component so that we can be a more reliable provider of our services and our products. So these are the things that I think come to the surface when I talk about what's being discussed at the boardroom, what's being discussed at private equity uh, companies, uh, what's frankly being discussed um, generally uh, when we go to these think tanks and we, and we talk you know, globally about what's going on. So a little more detail. I, I wanted to make sure I had my time. You wanted me out of here at what time? Well, it's usually like 30 minutes, but you can go as long. How long has I gone? I don't keep track. Um, all right, so I'm going to go really quickly through a few slides. ESG, the trends in the boardroom. What we see, what we see is sustainable debt issuance, okay, the, the kind of debt that would be offered to just, you know, sustainable ideas, alternative energy, et cetera. It's at record highs. So if you have a green idea, if you have something like that, you have more access to money than you do if you're going to drill a well, okay? So it's at record highs. So it's still there. However, there's this new trend, this concern over greenwashing. People coming out and saying, oh, we're going to by 2050, we're going to have you know, zero carbons, and, and there's all kinds of new net zeros, and everyone's got really clever ways to put it. And if you get, dig into it a little bit, you'll see there's always a trick in how they say it. But the reality is the, the regulatory agencies are not going to stand for this. They're all over it. So you're not going to be able as a corporation to greenwash your way into favor with the market. You're just not. And, uh, and I'm glad they're doing it. Okay, so it's important. Uh, but the concerns among investors, it's rising. People are worried that, that um, just because you said you're going to be you know, net zero by 2050, prove it. 
but there were a lot of companies that came out and said it, uh, but really didn't have to prove it. Uh, so aggressive sustainability goals are being looked at with a lot more scrutiny than they used to. Uh, there's a rising pressure to demonstrate those goals. And that's really what the SEC uh, document was about, was to create some accountability. I always love to look at this over 10 years. So in the 10 years that I've been involved in ESG, in 2010, when you talked about the E, it was really about avoid environmental insult, avoid Valdez, avoid Macondo, avoid, that's where the E was. You know, as an industry, you needed to avoid environmental insult. In governance, it was about oversight. Is your board actively engaged in overseeing management's you know, work? And in social, it was all about safety. Were you a safe company? Are you a company we want to have in my neighborhood because I know you'll be uh, not a threat to my community? But now in 2020, and this is still true in 2022, three now, E is all about climate. It's stolen the, the agenda. It's all about climate. S is about supply chain. So you, who you're doing business with, it's, it's social uh, aspect is about geopolitical risk and making sure you have optionalities and that you're giving equal weight to, to uh, reliability versus cost. And G is all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's all about, so you, you know, i in the process of replacing board members, okay? And it's very difficult right now because the investors are expecting to see diversity on your board. And this is a good thing because I believe in diversity, but our boards were old white males. I often thought old white fat males because that would fit me, right? And so, but all of my boards, that's who we were, okay? You're seeing now much different. Okay, so we have a lot more women on boards, which is great. Uh, we have a lot more diversity. And frankly, we didn't have as big a pool of women and diverse, qualified diverse candidates. And so there's this huge demand for qualified diverse candidates to come on boards. It's one of the most difficult things we do. I'm, I'm uh, vice chair of the Nom and Gub Committee. And so when we go out and look for somebody, finding the talent that can come on the board and be effective, have the background, have the right experience, and be diverse, very hard, very hard to do. Um, so diversity, equity, inclusion has kind of stolen the governance conversation. And when I think about these environment, social, if you build down, one thing we didn't talk about, biodiversity, really important topic these days, water quality, and understanding how, what is the impact of our operations on water, whether it be freshwater use, or maybe in our case, produced water treatment, and the recycle and reuse of produced water. Um, in social, I already talked about DEI. Worker well-being is making its way back. It was a big deal in the 70s, uh, and, and then we kind of got you know, uh, uninterested. And then COVID introduced a completely different way of working remotely. And the young kids, the generation that my children are and younger, they liked that idea a lot. So now we're having to change how we work. Because if it does work, there's a whole new lifestyle that can be developed around that. And it was a big, for guys my age, it's a, it's a huge change for us. We have to learn though, if we're gonna attract the talent, we're gonna have to learn how to employ what we learned worked during COVID, and of course, what didn't work, so that we have this blend of maybe the old way and the new way. And I can tell you that my own son, uh, who works for Philip 66, he talks about it all the time, quality of life. He's more interested in quality of life. When I was his age, I was more interested in how much money I could make. Okay, that was all I, I mean, you could, you could basically work me 20 hours a day if I could make more money, okay? That would not work with the next generation. So you can't offer that. Okay, and so it's really important that we understand about worker well-being, what those expectations are. We talked about supply chain, talked about the SEC and their increased governance uh, around accountability. Keyword, transparency. I mean, best governance model in the world is if you know something that's going to be conf uh, confrontational or maybe uh, something that won't be well received by the market, get it out there. 
Be transparent. Get the information out there. Good news, bad news, doesn't matter. Get the news out there. Don't let others tell your story. And then, of course, regulatory scrutiny. We're seeing a much more active regulatory scrutiny. This last slide I'm going to share with you, ESG is no longer an isolated conversation. These things are all blending. They're all confusing. You know, whether you're talking DEI or biodiversity or you're talking water quality, it's turning out to where it has an E impact, has an S impact, and a G impact. And so the conversations are becoming much more complex as we try to understand what the next path forward is. Okay? So those are the things going on the board. I wanted to offer, Aaron asked, you know, anybody wants to talk about anything? Like I said, I just created this uh, in a very short period of time. What questions do you guys have of, of what's going on that I could answer? Any? I didn't, pro I didn't produce any curiosity. That's my goal, by the way, is uh, a professor is always supposed to generate curiosity. I'm just yes. curious. Either one. Go back to nuclear, if you have uh, any insights or knowledge, I personally don't, but I'm curious. The Bill Gates concept, of, mm -hmm. I think it's fission. But yeah, it's fission, five. yeah. So, do you know anything on that? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's going to be nuclear fission. You know, it's proven technology. Yeah. Okay, we know what that is. The, the issue on fission is you've got to figure out a way how to manage the nuclear waste. So there's two ways. It's one is to mitigate and eliminate uh, as much as you can, uh, which is what Bill Gates is attempting to do. And the other is to have a good solution for actual disposal of those nuclear waste, uh, which we don't have a good answer for. Okay, but he's basically incinerating his model is incinerating the nuclear waste to get another build, if you will. It's kind of like waste heat recovery. Yeah. Uh, so he's taking the nuclear waste and giving it another round, and therefore there's a lot less nuclear waste from Bill Gates' plan than, than others. And so I, there's going to be a role for nuclear fission. There's no doubt about it. You know, we have submarines that have had nuclear fission for years, and we've made it safe. So, uh, and, and, you know, we have a, we've demonized nuclear energy in this country. Okay, we've demonized it. Um, but he's only got a source of the fuel, which, which is Russia, so he's yeah. That, that he's got a supply chain problem as well. Uh, we can help him with that, but, uh, but there, there are things to do. That. Hydrogen is going to be, I think, a big source of fusion, so there's going to be a nice hydrogen market. How many people uh, read the book Color of Oil? It was written in the 80s by Michael Economides. Do you remember his prediction? There would be a hydrogen economy, that following the hydrocarbon economy that we're in, there would be a hydrogen economy. I'll be darned if he wasn't just maybe 20, 30 years too early. Go back and read that book, because he, when he describes what's coming next, I think we're going to find that hydrogen is going to be the next big energy source, whether it be used as, as fusion, as a, port, a, a little sun, or whether it be used in vehicles. Either way. So I think that's a big deal. Yes, sir? As a recent surge of development of artificial intelligence, that's entered into a... Oh, my gosh. The amount of knowledge we've attained from machine learning and artificial intelligence and the speed in which we, we can analyze data today that, frankly, we didn't have the capabilities. So we have a new degree at, at the University of Oklahoma called Geoenergy, where we are taking the old-fashioned geology degree, taking the we think is the best of that degree. Have you got any OU geologists in here? Okay. Well, that's too bad. Anyway, uh, and then you take uh, the old petroleum engineering curriculum and take the best out of that, and then you add the machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, computer science to it, okay? And because what we're finding is um, we didn't know what we didn't know, right? So the data is not new. We've had this data. But then we let, let a computer look at it, and we, they, they see different things, and they come up with different analogs. Now, at, at first, some of the information that comes out of this machine learning, and especially artificial intelligence, seems nonsensical. But you know it's true, right? So then you have to go and sometimes back into the reason so the, the, the knowledge that's being gained from machine learning and artificial intelligence, the computer power that we have now, is incredible. 
absolutely incredible. And it's true in geoscience. It's true in um, engineering. Uh, it's really played out well in climate because the data we're capturing, I don't know if you all know, but the University of Oklahoma has a $280 million grant from NASA, and we measure the CO2 via satellite. So we're measuring the CO2 like every six feet okay, in the atmosphere. We got good data. Uh, but from that data, we can tell you where the CO2 is coming from. You know, you're measuring it that granularly, we can say, and, and if you can imagine, big cloud over a developing country where a lot of the CO2 is coming from, not so much of the oceans, okay, because you've got a lot of algae and stuff that's consuming CO2. By the way, bioengineering is going to be a part of the climate science solution as well. It's going to be. There's no doubt. Um, I think most people know there was a UK professor that thought he would go do an experiment in the Pacific Ocean, I forget his name, and he fertilized the ocean. He basically put a bunch of iron in the ocean and created a bunch of algae, and he proved his point. CO2 just sucked out of the air. Uh, we now have an algae bloom, like 40 square miles that we can't kill, okay? And I think he's in prison. Uh, but, but the point being is, so you gotta be careful what you do, right? We, we may, one, one solution may cause another problem, and uh, we gotta make sure of that. But more data, more anal analytical tools for data is gonna lead to greater knowledge. It's a big deal. Yes, sir. You, you had a question. I just wonder, you know, we've seen a backlash in the markets against ESG. I mean, yes. Like you said, where's the profit? Right. And most of these technologies, we, we know, we're going to embrace as an industry. We all know that any waste we have isn't profitable. Right. We, you know, right. Any waste we see obviously can be turned from environmental waste to profit waste. So right. most of these technologies are 50 years from the, the R&D that we need and the, prove, you know, the proven you know, use of. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff we don't feel applicable to most of our companies here. Right. I mean, yes, the big, you know, big corporations can put a team of ESG, you know, people together and say, hey, what can we do as a big company? But for, you know, small operators, for mm -hmm. service companies, you know, a lot of this is like, it's hard. beautiful pie in the sky, but yeah. I have to turn a profit. I don't have right. time for right. ESG. So, to get into a detail there, so for example, all of my friends are Oklahoma entrepreneurs, you know, they own... 1,500 stripper wells, or, and they're, make, they're making a nickel or a dime you know, margin, and, and EPA comes out with a regulation of, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, and basically puts you out of business, okay? Um, unfortunately, that may very well be the short-term consequence of a long-term solution. Uh, but the reality is, um, the way I come down on this, uh, we need to do everything we know how to do today. And we know how to tighten flanges and eliminate methane emissions and make sure tanks have vapor recovery systems. And, and, and in most cases, most cases, there's a lot of work that can be done economically too. Right okay. now, we, uh, I mean, how, we have a million wells roughly online in right. the US, right? Right. But do we know how many have flares out there? Right, we, we have a bunch. Yeah, I mean, we in Texas, we, we, have, we have a lot of the data in Texas now. But you know, that, that, you know to me, we can cap those right now generators. There, there. there are other things, that, there are things that we as an industry can do and we know how to do it now. That's what I suggest we work on. The 50 year pie in the sky stuff, there are gonna be people work on that, okay? But as an industry, we just, just go to work on the things we know how to That's do. Yeah, floor cameras, knowing what you've got, figuring out where your missions are, looking at your operations, not once, but on a continual basis, uh, putting in samplers like Project Canary does at your fence line to tell you what your, your, your CO2 methane contributions are. By the way, samplers, the technology and sensing, remote sensing, has gotten so much better. It used to be that you could go buy an Atlantic Science, uh, Scientific Atlantic device and it was $25,000 device. I predict that that same device will be available to the industry for $2,000 next year. Is there any grants next out year. there or you know, things that maybe insurance companies that insure our well sites would do, like mitigate that cost entirely and just say, hey, by the way, here's these sensors for you? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware of any grants. That's a good question. But there is no doubt 
new industries developing developing these new lower cost technologies. Right, and and that's the big game that you're seeing the regulatory agencies play. If you're going to produce CO2, show us how you're offsetting it. I mean, and so, uh, but that takes people too. So small companies, they can't, you know, that's hard work to. Yeah. Right. Yeah, one of the comments that questions I usually get, and I'll just throw it out there, you know, how come petroleum engineering degree is, is basically at an all-time low? And, and, and it's because of these reasons. Um, we, one, we become more efficient. We used to be able to have to two or three petroleum engineers, drilling engineers on a pad. Now we have them in a, a conference room looking at 40 wells being drilled simultaneously, and there's one of them sitting in there looking at it all at once. So our own technology development, our own ability to use uh, software, if you will, has allowed for the headcount not to be needed anymore. And so that's changed, and that's forever changed, right? That's not coming back, okay? Uh, but there is a lot of things that have changed around the field that we're going to need. So if you're going to pursue geothermal, you're going to need a little different petroleum engineer. If you're going to, or even a geologist for that matter, if you can pursue the, some of these kinetic solutions, um, you're, you know, there's just a whole host of new things that need to be developed in order to be effective in our future. So that's why you've got to get back to that knowledge development model. Yes, sir? Too many thoughts. Trying to crystallize into a question for you. No worries. If you cry wolf too many times, people stop paying attention. That's right. And I, I think I can say to myself, I don't listen to any of these organizations anymore because they cry wolf. The United Nations to right. our own government. Right. And so you made the comment earlier, you stop short of alarmism. Right. Stated differently, catastrophizing. Right. 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 Which is linked to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. But you're involved in an organization, Concordia, and I look no yeah. with very well. I yeah. Yeah. But they celebrate those people. Right. Right. Antonio Guterres, mm -hmm. the UN, standing in the middle of the ocean as if climate change has caused sea level rise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. has increased its land. That's right. That's right. So the, the, amount, the sheer amount of straight-up lies yeah. is, is problematic. And my question to you, I guess, in trying to crystallize this, is what are you doing with your influence right. to try to get these organizations to be taken credibly? So the first Concordia I was invited to was in Florida. And I was the only oil and gas executive there. Okay. Now there's three of us. Okay. Can you imagine how I was treated? Think of the worst possible way to treat another human being and multiply it by 10, okay? And it was one of those deals where I was like going, I, why am I doing this to myself? Okay, this is just not worth it. But the reality is I knew we needed a voice. And so when you say, well, how, what am I doing? I'm pitching, okay? I'm in there telling them, hey, I'm not here to deny climate science. And, let, and I'll, I'll take another angle on this just so you know. Yes, there were those people that cried wolves. But there were also people in our industry that stayed deniers way too long, okay? We caused our own problems, okay? I, I, don't, I won't name names, but induced seismicity. We had the science, and we said it had nothing to do with the oil and gas industry. And it's out there. API even said it, okay? Yeah, and, 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 then, and then we said, oh my gosh, it has nothing to do with, oh, it, it maybe just produced water, but it has nothing to do with fracking. Nothing. Oh, shoot, uh, a little more data came in. Yeah, if you get too close to a fault, it's a problem. Okay, so, so you know, what we have to be careful of is that we're not, even though we're not crying wolf necessarily, we're not playing the role that basically gives them credibility. Okay? We gave them credibility by all the things we've said. So we're the ones that lack credibility, not them. So when you're in these dialogues with all these other people, uh, it doesn't help to be a conservative Republican either. I think I'm the only one of those in that classroom too. But the reality, I, I find myself in a very difficult environment, right? And so, um, but it is, it is noble enough to stay engaged in the conversation. It's important enough to stop them when they are saying, oh, the water's going up, and you give them facts 
And the facts are what you said. It's not the crisis that they think it is. Not yet. Now, does, if you take and extrapolate also like a bunch of boiling frogs not doing anything in the pan and do nothing, could it be that bad? Yeah, of course. I don't buy the models either, by the way. I mean, I've never been on a model anything, right? Including type curves, okay? And that was my job. Uh, so, you know, w when you're predicting things, it's just very difficult to do because there's so many factors that you can't. Now, as we get better with machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data, and we can put in the information that we don't even understand, it will, it will, our accuracy will get better. But it's not accurate now. So I still participate in these conversations. I find it very difficult. Uh, I take a lot of heat. Um, but I, I feel it's important. I feel it's important. At my point in my career, kind of done, you know, making money, kind of done doing the things. I loved uh, being a CEO. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, but now I'm just doing things that I hope help society. And so that's where I'm spending my time. And, uh, and so I keep trying to find myself in those audiences that you're describing. And I just offer, I, oftentimes, because you can't argue with them, I just hold up the mirror. Okay, I just say, okay, so you're talking bad about the industry because they denied this, they denied that. Now, what are you saying about, by the way, you predicted in 2008 the world was coming to an end. Here's, your, here's, the, here's the article that, you, that your advocates wrote. It's, by the way, it's 2023, we're still here. Okay, so what happened to that model? It was wrong. That's all there was to it, it was wrong. Yeah? So by taking Robert's comments one step further, what can we do as an industry to promote what you're saying, and, and I, I'll give you a simple example. We all see some, you know, late night commercials for a pharmaceutical, and it's going to cure yeah. Or, yeah. whatever you got. But then it goes like, you know, but this may cause, you know, uh, headaches, blindness, death, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. right now, that's the lawyers. The lawyers got all of it. Yeah. On the climate issues, we all hear about the headaches, blindness, and death, right? We don't hear uh, the other side, which I, I'll make a statement that maybe somebody wants to challenge me, but I will say that we could not feed 8 billion people on this planet today if we went back to the CO2 levels we had pre-industrial revolution. It's probably true. Yeah. Probably but true. We hear nothing about it. So what can we do as an industry to, to, to actually, get that control of the narrative? It's actually not probably true. It is definitely true. <laughs> uh, and, and I think there's a, a chapter in Alex Epstein's book that proves it. Okay. Uh, so there are things that people, people don't appreciate that. I loved watching China because I was in China when, uh, you know, my first trip to China, everybody was on a bicycle. My second trip to China, everybody was on a moped. My third trip to China, everybody was in little cars, okay? Uh, now they look, Beijing looks just like us, but, it's, but the air, you could cut with a knife, okay? It looks like New York was in the, whatever, 1950s, I guess. Uh, or no, 1930s. Uh, so the reality is, we all have gone through this evolution, right, of learning what is tolerable. I mean, I don't know how many people have ever been um, to Pennsylvania, uh, but when I was a boy, I went to Pennsylvania and, and what's the river? Is it Pittsburgh River? What's the river just up? Allegheny? Allegheny. Allegheny. Allegheny? I mean, nothing lived in that river back then. I mean, we had industry on every bank. It was awful, okay? Now we have marine life. It's beautiful. It's pristine. In fact, I read this week in Financial Times that the Thames River, for the first time, has uh, got marine life in it, okay, in London. I mean, we, we have to think about ourselves. You know, we have polluted our own planet, okay? And our industry does not have the best reputation. Just go back and reread the prize, okay? If you, if you want to think that everybody in our industry was just the straight up kind of guys that you, know, you really want to be a part of, that, that prize will shock you, okay? I, I, I actually make the kids at OU read the prize uh, because I want them to know where some of this is coming from. They're joining an industry that is seen in a very negative way, some of which is earned. Some of which we, our predecessors earned it. But forget about all the past. What do we do now? What do we do now is no more Macondos. Okay? No more environmental in insults. Don't be sloppy with your methane emissions. Let's get rid of flared wells. We don't need to be flaring gas right now. Let's find another way 
Let's find another way. It may require team players. It may require businesses going out of business. I don't know. Stripper mills may be done. I know it's been a great business for a lot of my friends, but it may be hard to keep this up because if the regulatory hurdle gets set where I think EPA is talking about setting it now, I don't see how my friends stay in business. It's going to be really hard. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean we can't find a way to cleverly get around it and technology do better, uh, but, but we need to be... War on methane emissions is my answer to your question. What can we do as an industry? War. War on methane emissions. Okay? Where were you when you uh, saw the destroyed blanket? Where was I? I was in the National Livermore Labs in California. Yeah, I, was, uh, I happened to be there by accident the day they did a shot that they later came back and said that it was the three to one increase in energy. It was, kinda, it was just lucky. I, I took a couple of CEOs out there to, to show them what the new technology looks like and uh, got a nice tour. By the way, if you, if you ever get the opportunity to get a tour, it's kind of hard to do, but uh, it's, it's a you know, multi-billion dollar national ignition facility. Um, where they use lasers and they've, they've fine-tuned the lasers using, you know, customized um, crystals to where they get the, the bandwidth of the laser so down, so low, and they hit these hydrogen pellets so hard simultaneously, that's, that's the breakthrough that's producing the energy. And uh, by the way, if you don't know this, that was not where we thought fusion energy was going to come from. We thought fusion energy was going to come from magnets. We were going to magnetically hold the target in place that's, that technology is proven to be, that's what they're doing in Europe. That's proven to not be the lead right now. Anyway, thank you. Right. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.